Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 John 3, 1 John chapter 3. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need one and get their attention, those are marked at 1 John 3 for you. Now today we conclude the many series that we've been in over the last few weeks. And the title of that series is The Treasure of the Gospel. And that title is also at the top of the insert that is in your program. So I invite you to take that out because we'll be referencing it a few times. If you take a look at that insert, you'll see that we filled in five of the six lines on the chart. We've looked at the fact that those who have a relationship with God have that relationship because he has called them effectively. There's been an effectual call in their lives that delivers them from the persuasion of sin and gives a new perspective. That those that God calls, he gives spiritual life. That's regeneration that delivers from the power of sin, giving a new heart. And that that causes us to then believe in Jesus and what he has done. And so we express faith and repentance. And having done so, we are the third line in that chart, justified. Justification delivers us from the penalty of sin, giving us a new record. And we're adopted gloriously into God's family so that no longer estranged from God and outside of relationship with him, we're delivered from the position of sin and we're given a new family. Last week, we saw that though all of those things have happened at a point in time in the past for those who have come to Christ, in the present, God is changing us day by day, year by year, into the image of Christ. And that's called sanctification. Gradually becoming more holy, more set apart from sin and unto God. That's the deliverance from the practice of sin, giving us a new life in the here and now. Today we're going to look at the last item. You see the sixth item there is glorification. Now when we think of glorification, most of us think of heaven. Because we often use glory as a synonym for heaven. We might say, God called Joe home to glory, for instance. And that's certainly accurate. Heaven and glory go together. But I'm not sure that most of us understand why they go together. I mean, what does glory mean? And how does it relate to our final destination in heaven? So I'd like to spend a good bit of our time today showing the connection between God's glory and heaven. And then at the end, we'll make some practical application of that. Now, I have to, from the outset, encourage you to make a conscious effort to stay with me. Because I fear as we move forward, some of this may get a bit heady. And it will be very easy for you to tune out because you're having to think too much this early in the morning. So let's especially ask God to help us as we look at this issue, all right? Father, we thank you again for the blessed opportunity to be gathered as your people in your presence on the Lord's day. Lord, we ask you to settle our minds, open our hearts to the truth of your word. May we glean your truth accurately, and then may we apply it so that when we go from this place, we will be better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, glorification is the end of a process that began not when we were called. That's the first of the six things at the top of the chart. But glorification didn't, didn't start there. And it didn't start with regeneration or justification or adoption. These all happened at a point in time in the past if you've come to God through Jesus. 
But it's a process that ends with what we're going to see today, glorification. But it started before anything that's on that chart. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says this. Those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, what we're going to look at today, and in fact, what we've been looking at these last several weeks, all of it began not when we believed, Not even when Christ died on the cross, not even in the beginning. It all began before the beginning. Now see, I told you, you've got to think about that. Before the beginning? Yes, because before the beginning of time, there was, of course, already God. And as you know, the Bible begins with the phrase, in the beginning, God created So from its very first line, the Bible makes clear that at the time of the beginning, there was already God. And before the beginning, God created a plan for all of those things on that chart to take place. He created a plan that involved to whom it would all happen. Notice that the verse that we had on the screen earlier said that those he predestined, And then he called and then he justified and he glorified. It's not what he predestined. So God's plan involved to whom it would all happen. And he created a plan that involved how it would happen. His plan was that it would be centered on the life and death of God the Son, who was, according to Scripture, chosen before the creation of the world. So before time, before the beginning... God the Son is chosen for this task. And the Bible says further in the very last book of your Bible, as history is consummated and he has brought to final glory, the Bible says he is the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now why? Why did God devise a plan before the creation of the world that involved how he would make provision on the cross of Christ for those who would come to him? And also how he would bring them safely to their appointed end. Why did God do all of that? Well, God, like all artists, certainly had a reason for what he created. All artists, those who create, whether they create paintings or music or sculpture or theater or whatever, all artists create for a reason. Now, it may be for no other reason than they need the money. I play my music on nights and weekends to pay the bills while I go to medical school. Hopefully one day I'll get a real job. Or it may be to make a statement, even if an erroneous statement. The composer John Cage believed that we live in a universe of chance. And he sought to express his false belief in the very way that he composed his music. I read from one author that Cage, quote, began to compose his music through the tossing of coins. It's said that for some of his pieces, lasting only 20 minutes, he had tossed the coin thousands of times to determine which note would be next. This is pure chance, but apparently not pure enough. He wanted still more chance. So he devised a mechanical conductor. It was a machine working on cams, the motion of which cannot be determined ahead of time, and the musicians just followed this. Or, as an alternative, sometimes he employed two conductors who could not see each other both conducting simultaneously, anything to produce pure chance. There's a story that once, after the musicians had played Cage's total chance music, 
As he was bowing to acknowledge the applause, let me just stop, people applauded. There was a noise behind him. He thought it sounded like steam escaping from somewhere, but then to his dismay, he realized it was the musicians behind him and they were hissing. Now, what was the reason for John Cage's seemingly purposeless compositions? Well, even though he believed that there was no intelligence guiding the world, but rather all of life is pure chance, he purposed to make that point with his music. His purpose was to show there's no purpose. Now, thankfully, many artists seek to express better and nobler beliefs through their work, seeking to convey the true, the good, and the beautiful. But humans can only create, we can only create, because we've been made in the image of a God who himself creates. God is the first and ultimate artist. And like all artists, he creates, or like all true artists, he creates for a reason. And his reason is the same as most true artists. He creates in order to express himself. And so everything on that chart, from effectual call, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and now glorification, everything on that chart is a means by which God is expressing who he is and what he is like. And then everything before that and in between that, all serve to produce what's on that chart, and it's all been done in the interest of God expressing his own character. It's all been done and is being done in order for God to display in his world what he is like. And so, for example, the Bible teaches that he planned in eternity past to express his character quality of love. His character quality of love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Bible says in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised. And notice, promised before the beginning of time. Which then, for me... Perhaps for you raises a question. If it's before the beginning of time, then to whom is God making a promise? And you have the answer to that in another letter written by the same Paul who wrote Titus. And it's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, which says this. This grace of salvation was given to us, notice, in Christ Jesus. And then you have the very same phrase we had in Titus 1 before the beginning of time. So to whom did God the Father make this promise that this is all going to come to pass before anything was ever created? 2 Timothy 1 tells us it was in Christ Jesus. God the Father made a promise to God the Son. And so before anything was created, before the beginning of time, the Father shows his love to the Son by promising to him, the Son, people who will come to him and honor him with their lives. And the Son returns that love to the Father by accepting those whom the Father gives. And Jesus said that when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. He said, there are these people that the Father has given to me. John chapter 6. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. 
God the Son shows his love to God the Father by accepting those that the Father has given to him as a gift of his love. But he further shows his love for God the Father by not only accepting the people the Father has chosen to give him, but also by accepting the means by which it would all happen. His own death on the cross. That's why the Bible says in this famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God the Son accepts the love gift of God the Father of a people of his very own. But he also accepts from God the Father the means by which that's going to happen. It's going to be through his death on the cross. The Father made the plan to display his character, including the character quality of his love for God the Son. God the Son accepts the people and the means by which that act of love would be carried out. And then you have God the Holy Spirit who loves both the Father and the Son, and he too participates in this grand drama as well. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So God devised this plan in eternity past, To show love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit loves and is loved by the Father and the Son and back and forth between the members of the Trinity. And God the Holy Spirit demonstrates His love for the Father and the Son by applying the work of both to the lives of those that the Father has chosen. So then, with all of that, why did God design a plan that involved the plan of our salvation. Well, first, what I've let me summarize what we've seen so far. The gospel is an expression of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's where it all began. The reason we have this good news message is because in eternity past, this decree, this plan, was made by God. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. But then we get involved in this plan that extends from predestination in eternity past to glorification in eternity future and then in everything in between. We get involved in this now. So the gospel is an expression of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. But then I add to that this. The gospel expresses love in a way that extends God's glory. God's glory is his character. We're going to see that in just a bit. God shows one aspect of his character, his love for the Son and for the Holy Spirit and vice versa. In the plan that he makes in giving these people to the Son and the Son's love for the Father, in accepting that and accepting his role in it, as does the Spirit. But now we get involved, and that's the gospel expressing love in a way that extends God's glory. So I remind you that the last item on that chart 
is glorification. Glorification. And that's because the last item in Romans 8.30 that we saw a bit ago is that we will be glorified. Again, Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So God does everything he does for a reason. And the reason is to express his character. And that's going to end ultimately in our, if we belong to Jesus, our glorification. So we need to make sure we understand what this glory thing is. The word glory is used a few ways in the Bible, one of which is to display God's character. We see it, for example, in this famous passage in Romans 3 that says, All have sinned and therefore fall short of the glory of God. So the glory of God is who he is. It's his character. And we sin when we fail to live up to the character of God. Or another famous passage that many of you are familiar with, 1 Corinthians 10. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is, do it for the purpose and do it in a way of displaying the character of God. And God, like all true artists, does what he does to express himself, to display his character. And God's artistry in creation displays his character, his power and his beauty, for instance. And that's why the psalmist could say the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the character of God, that he's a God of beauty and creativity and of power. So glory in the Bible refers to the display of God's character. And we come into it this way. We were made in God's image. We were made to be mirrors that reflect God back to God as we reflect his character in thinking and talking and acting like God would. We bring glory to God when we reflect God's character in the way we think, talk, and act. And God told the first man and the first woman, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Because God wants to be able to look out into his world and he wants to be able to see his reflection everywhere. So be fruitful and multiply. Multiply these image bearers that will reflect me back to me. So Psalm 72 says, Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with. With his glory. So glorification, friends, refers to a state in which one day we will fully and perfectly reflect God's character. Because at all times and in all situations, we will think and talk and act like God. Ah, What a blessed thing that will be. At all times and in all situations, I reflect accurately the character of God back to the God who made me in his image by thinking and talking and acting as he would. Okay, but why all the pain? (laughs) Why all the pain in between predestination and glorification? All right, fine. For the 12 of you that are still awake. You've convinced me that that's what the Bible teaches about the plan of God and his pursuit of his glory. But why all the stuff in between? 
Why didn't God just make us like him and make us so that we stay that way? He made Adam and Eve like him. But as we know, he also made it possible for them to become broken, distorted mirrors. Which they indeed did become and which we their children are. But hear this, that too was for the purpose of extending his glory. That is, allowing the possibility of sin was also for the purpose of displaying his character, extending the display of his character into his world. I remind you that the gospel is an expression of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the gospel expresses love in a way that extends God's glory. And he extends his glory by saving and now not creating, but recreating more people who display his character. But also by displaying, now hear this, more aspects of his character. So he not only extends it by having multiplied people now from all corners of the earth come to him and are changed by him so that they reflect him accurately. But he also has made his world in such a way that we will reflect more aspects of his character beyond love. And that could only be done against the backdrop of sin and misery and pain that go with it. You say, really? Well, here's this passage in Romans chapter 9 that says this. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? Yikes. Now, I want you to notice in that passage, there are aspects of God's character now beyond his love. His wrath and his power. Those are manifest in the way he has designed his world and the way he has carried out his plan for his world. And there are people who will experience his wrath. And then that last line just says, prepared for destruction. An ominous phrase. Now I'm going to explain that briefly in just a moment, but I just want you to lock it into your mind. It just says, prepared for destruction. And then the verse right after that says this What if he did this? Now, the this is the having folks who will bear his, ultimately bear his wrath, but he is bearing with great patience those objects of wrath. But he did all of this for this purpose, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. So here's another aspect of God's character, mercy. And what those two verses are saying is in order for you to know mercy, there has to be wrath. There has to be sin. You would never know mercy if there, if there was not. So here you have other character qualities of God that he desired to extend, to make known beyond his love, his wrath, his power, his mercy. This passage says that in allowing sin, it gives God the opportunity to show aspects of his character that would not otherwise be known apart from it. His power over the rebellious, his holy judgment against sin, that is his wrath. These are seen in the context of sin. And it tells us why he allows this. Verse 23, that's on the screen, says he did this. But he did what? Well, he did what's back in verse 22. He bore with patience the objects of his wrath. 
And he made the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. So it's saying the ultimate purpose is related to him showing his love and mercy and grace and faithfulness to those whom the Father has given to Jesus in eternity past. But mercy is not seen apart from misery. And so even allowing sin serves God's glorious purpose. Now I've said God allowed sin rather than he caused it. Well, why do I do that? Well, that's because God's holy character is incapable of sin himself. And the Bible tells us very directly in James chapter 1 and verse 13 that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God does not tempt anyone. It's impossible for God to do so. And I think we see this, that God is not the author of sin, in the very grammar of the passage we've considered. The end of verse 23 in Romans chapter 9 explicitly states who it was that prepared people for mercy. Here's what it says again. He, God, prepared them beforehand for glory. God prepared them for glory. So who was it that prepared the other people? The other people who are prepared for destruction. Remember that line I told you to remember? Who did that? Well, when that previous verse speaks of these vessels or objects of wrath, it just says at the end, prepared for destruction. So the one verse says very explicitly, who did the preparing? God prepared people for mercy. But the other simply says they're prepared for destruction without attributing it to God. And that's because in Greek, the language that your New Testament was written in, the phrase on the screen is written in what is called the active voice. It identifies who did the preparing. The, but the prior verse is translated just prepared for destruction because it's written in the passive voice. It doesn't identify who did the preparing. And the implication is that those who are punished are so because they have prepared themselves for that very end. And yet, it tells us God has borne with great patience. God is still patient with them. And that's why the Bible says God is not willing, God is not desirous that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So glory is the display of God's character. And glorification, then, is the time in which we will perfectly display God's character. And everything that God has planned, and everything that happens in between, the good and the bad and the ugly... It's all for the purpose of God extending the display of his character in his world. Glorification is that time in which we'll perfectly display God's character. And that's the only way to get to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is to ultimately, perfectly to display the character of God. Now, before you leap to the conclusion that, oh, man... I'll never make it because if I've got to work my way up to that, that ain't going to happen. You're right. That ain't going to happen. So how can I then say the only way for you to get to heaven is for you to perfectly display the character of God? Here's how. I ask you to turn to 1 John 3. And verse 2. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. So now, right now, if we've come to Christ, this is our status. We are the children of God. 
But then the verse goes on to say, and we know that when, now in the future, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. And here's why we shall be like him. For, because we shall see him as he is. You could perhaps think now, as you look at that verse, that it means that when we die or when Christ returns and we look at Christ, then we're changed by looking. Or more accurately, you can see that verse as you are changed. Now hear this, so that you can look at Christ. You're not changed by looking at Christ. You're changed so that you can look at Christ. One commentator, S. Lewis Johnson, says this. What this means is that there's a transformation in me accomplished by God, which enables me to see what I could not have seen were it not for the transformation. In other words, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is means that there will be such a transformation in us that we will be able to see him. You all know that the Bible teaches that when we die or when Jesus returns, that we are going to be translated. We are going to be transformed. We are going to be given new bodies and new character. We will be perfectly transformed. And having been perfectly transformed, then we can see him. And so 1 John 3, 2, you could read it this way. We shall be like him for, or you could put the word because, we shall see him as he is. Simple illustration is, If you're dressing for the prom, and guys, if you get a tuxedo, do people wear tuxedos to proms? I have no idea. But you put on your tuxedo for or because of the fact that you're going to the prom. And we are given a glorified body and glorified character because it's the only way to see Christ. This transformation is absolutely necessary because the Bible says this, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So when 1 John 3 says, we shall see him, the only way to see him is to have that holiness. And if you've got to achieve that holiness by your own doing, then you're done. And so am I. But the Bible teaches he changes us. And so this has effects in the here and now. The next verse, verse 3 says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. And so the fact that I have been made to represent the holy character of God, to reflect it back to him, the fact that the only way that anyone will ever see God is that they are perfectly transformed into the image of Christ. That fact then motivates me and should motivate you in the here and now in order to live pure lives today. And being like Christ in character is said to be the goal of, again, that passage we've seen twice now, Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Here's what it says. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And then what we've already read, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so that process now of adopting the character of God gradually, day by day, that we saw last week in sanctification, that's begun now. 
but it will end in glorification when we are perfectly and instantaneously transformed into the image of God perfectly. But it's happening now. And that's why the Bible says we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. Now, if that's happening now, and if I'm supposed to be living that way now, and you're supposed to be living that way now in anticipation of that blessed day when we will be fully transformed, if that's all true, and it is, if that's the case, then how should I be motivated to live today in the here and now? The Westminster Catechism says, what is, in its very first question, what is the purpose for mankind? And its famous answer is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and then notice this word and enjoy him forever. So it's written almost as if you glorify God and you enjoy him as if those are two different things. They're not two different things. In fact, one author has, for me at least, helpfully said, you know, we should modify one word in that wonderful answer to say this. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I mean, how do I reflect the character of God back to God? I see what God is like as wonderful, as beautiful, as amazing, as worthy of emulation. That there is no one and no thing that I would rather give my life and my affections and my values to other than the God who made me to be like him. And so I bring glory to him by reflecting his character as I enjoy all that he is and reflect all that he is. And then when we finally make it to our reward, yes, the surroundings will change, but more important, we, we all will be changed. So removal from the presence of sin is due in largest part to the fact that there will be no more sinners in the eternal state in heaven, at least. And so, friends, it's like the difference between being in a house for which we may or may not be fitted and being in a home where we are, are, are at one with our surroundings. What the Bible teaches is that glory, heaven, where we will all be glorified, we will all be transformed. The Bible teaches that we will be fitted to that new life, both physically and spiritually. Beauty is restored because we are restored, just as beauty was broken when our relationship with God was broken. And in earth now and in heaven then, the environment reflects the reality. On earth now, the environment that we live in reflects the reality. The culture and the world reflect the reality that we are broken and rebellious sinners. But in heaven one day, that environment will reflect who we are and what we've transformed, been transformed to be. As one of the songs that we sing from time to time says, the thorns that crowned Jesus were made by the fall. But because Jesus has defeated sin, there are no thorns in the sinless city. The environment will reflect the reality. Some of you may remember going back to, I think it was... I think it was Ronald Reagan who dubbed something called the Misery Index when he was running for president in 1980 against Jimmy Carter. The Misery Index that the Carter administration, per Reagan, had caused. And the Misery Index was unemployment plus inflation. That's the Misery Index. 
You put those two together, it adds up to serious misery. Well, the biblical misery index is the combination of sin and suffering. But hear this. Both our sin and our suffering will be overruled by God's glorious purpose. Not only now, but then, of course, in the future with that total transformation. So for us in the here and now, even though we live in the midst of this biblical misery index of sin and suffering, those are being overruled by God's glorious purpose, which is for his character to be reflected back to him in the circumstances in which he sovereignly places us. Being sinned against, suffering, living in a fallen world. So, friends, by way of application, when bad things happen, we think, where is God? But you need to understand, God is doing every last thing in his world for his glory, including the difficult circumstances. God is using our circumstances. Remember, I said God is the ultimate artist. And his people, his chosen people, are his ultimate masterpiece. God's the ultimate artist. And believe it or not, we, yikes, us, we're his ultimate masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10 says this. We are God's handiwork. The word handiwork is the Greek word poema. It's sometimes translated work of art. We are God's craftsmanship, it sometimes says. We are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So understand by way of application then that in the here and now, everything that's going on in your life is for this purpose of displaying God back to God. And molding us and shaping us. That's why the song that we sung earlier, May This Journey Bring a Blessing. And when, and when the time of my heart's testing is done. May I fully reflect God. May I be like you. And I also want you to understand that. And remember, friends, our misery, though it's accomplishing God's good purpose, our misery is temporary. Thanks be to God. This life, the here and now, is but a short span compared to eternity. And God is molding us and God is shaping us and God will one day completely transform us. And Christ has redeemed both the cause and the effects that are our misery. The cause is sin. The effect is misery because we're separated from God. And he paid for the sin and he endured the pain on our behalf. And so with all of that, the final aspect of the gospel in your insert is this. That God's grace in glorification delivers us from the presence of sin. And it gives us a new home. Now I want to make one last comment, offer an invitation, and we'll be done. Romans 8.30. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Four things. He predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Now notice all four of those are in the past tense. Predestined is obviously way in the past. Eternity past. Called is something, if you've come to Jesus, that he did at the time that you came to him. 
for me at the age of 19. And then doing what we have on the chart, calling me and then giving me spiritual life, then moved me to respond in faith and repentance to him. And so I was the third thing justified. So all of those predestined and called and justified are all in the past. And then the fourth one, glorified. Still written in the past tense, right? But has glorified happened yet? That's, this is not a trick question. The answer is no. And, and I know that you all don't have your glorified bodies because I'm looking at you. <laughs> and you know I don't have my glorified body yet either. So glorified has not happened Yet it's written in the past tense. And do you know why it's written in the past tense just like those others that have already happened? Because in the mind of our sovereign God who in eternity past has planned all of these things for his glory, our ultimate destination is as good as done. And so what that means is come what may, you will arrive safely home if you belong to him. Thanks be to God. And that truth then should motivate us to endure what the Bible calls our momentary and light afflictions, which compared to eternity are nothing really compared to that eternal weight of glory. And so your take-home truth at the bottom. Those who believe in Jesus are given the character necessary to live with God. Now, the first phrase there is those who Those who believe in Jesus are given the character necessary to live with God. Those who believe in Jesus. It is only those who believe in Jesus. And so I wonder whether you came into this room this morning believing in Jesus. Believing in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Who is Jesus? He is God. He is God having come as man to live the life that you and I should have lived and to die the death that each of us deserved. That's who he is. And what did he do? He lived for us and he died for us. And it is absolutely necessary for you to have the life and the death of Jesus applied to you personally. For you to be included in that statement. Those who believe in Jesus are given the character necessary to live with God. One day he is going to call each of us home, either by his return or by our death. And only if we belong to Jesus will we be transformed into his image perfectly, glorified. It'll be a blessed time for those who belong to him. But those who belong to him are only those who believe in him. There is no reason for any person in this room to not be transformed into the image of Jesus when he returns or when they die. He offers that to you now. Believe in me. Receive the gift that I offer to you. Now, how do you do that? In just a moment, we're going to pray. And those of us who have come to God, myself when I was 19, we're going to thank God. Thank God that we have assured for us, absolutely certainly, our heavenly home. But those of you who have never come to Christ, when we bow our heads from your heart to God, you pray to him. And you you acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner. And you say to him, I believe that Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserved. I ask you to forgive me. I give you my life. I'm going to follow you with my life. The Bible promises he that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together.
Father, we thank you for this blessed truth that our glorification is done in your mind. And yet you have left us here by your plan in the misery that is this fallen world in order for us to display your glory and aspects of your glory that can only be seen in that fallenness. And so, Lord, help us, knowing our purpose, then to pursue it and to pursue it with joy, enjoying being a part of reflecting you back to you in all of our circumstances that you have sovereignly designed for that very purpose. Lord, help each of us that know you to recommit ourselves to your glory here and now and to look forward to the glory that we will share in the future when we are removed from the presence of sin and when you transform us to perfectly reflect you back to you. Lord, I ask you for anyone who came into this room without a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to draw them to yourself, to move upon their hearts, to cause them to see who they truly are and what they truly need, and that Jesus is the answer and the only answer to that need. I pray that right now they are praying to you, acknowledging their sin, acknowledging who Jesus is and what he has done, and giving their lives to you. And Lord, we will bring, give you the glory. We will praise you for your character in doing all of these things. We pray all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.